<clears throat> Just as a brief reminder, today's text follows on what we have looked at previously, how Jesus returned to Jerusalem and healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and in doing so, drew the anger of the Jewish religious leaders. He drew the anger of the leaders because he had not only broken their rules regarding the Sabbath, again, note, not the fourth commandment, but their rules, and secondly, because in his statement, they said that he was making himself equal with God. And so that's where we pick up our text this morning in John chapter 5 at verse 19, and we'll be reading through to verse 30. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him, who sent me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. For without your power, O Lord, without the work of your Holy Spirit, they are but words on a page. But Lord, when you illuminate our minds and our hearts, we then can see you. We can long to be with you. And we are blessed by you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
Just who is Jesus? We've been studying the Gospel of John now for some time to find that out. The purpose of John's Gospel is to introduce us to Jesus so that we might know Him and believe in Him and that by believing in Him, we might have eternal life. And this is necessary because there are many false opinions about Jesus. For some, He is a good teacher who gives good advice and that we can follow his teachings and be blessed. For others, he is a work of fiction, a made-up character. Someone who never existed and who was devised by some people who wanted to espouse certain theology or teachings. For still others, he is a moral leader that they can invoke for their cause. They bring Jesus to bear on what they want to project. But the Jesus of the Bible leaves us no room for inventing. Who Jesus is, is clear. Sometimes it's shocking to us. But we must see and believe that Jesus is God. That Jesus is the judge of everyone, including us. That is the real Jesus. And so this morning, I would like us to see two things from our text, two main headings with some subheadings. First, we will see Jesus revealed as God. Jesus is revealed to us as God, specifically revealed to us in His relationship with the Father. And then secondly, revealed to us in the power that has been given to Him. But secondly, overall, we hear the reasons that we are to hear Jesus. It's not just that Jesus is revealed to us. He gives us the reasons that we are to hear Him, to listen and obey. Revealed as God Himself. Reasons to hear Jesus. Well, let's begin then by looking at our text and see Jesus revealed to us as very God. It starts in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, that is, the religious leaders, and remember, this is a consequence of verse 18. One of the disadvantages of preaching consecutively through books of the Bible is, you now have to remember what we looked at last week. It's only one verse away, but seven days away. And in verse 18, they were plotting to kill Jesus because he had called God his Father and was therefore making himself equal with God. And so Jesus answers their concern in verse 19 by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So what we have here is Jesus is not apologizing for that claim. He's not minimizing it. You or I might see that we would be in trouble and would try to avoid conflict and would say, well, no, we don't mean exactly that. Let me see if I can clarify. Let me, let me back that a little bit up. We see this all the time in the public eye. I don't know that a day goes by where some politician doesn't say, no, what I really meant was you misunderstood me. No, Jesus is not saying that they misunderstood him. Jesus is, to use our terminology, doubling down. 
He's making it very clear. You see, the Jews had seen his claim to be God and they were furious because of it. When Jesus called God his Father, he was saying that he was the same as the Father and that he was God. Now, he makes it clear in case anyone was unsure. And he starts with a phrase that should be familiar to you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. In the old authorized version, this is verily, verily. In the original Greek, you'll even understand the word. It is amen, amen. So be it. This is almost a type of oath in which what Jesus is saying is, listen up now. He wants their attention. He wants your attention. And you see, the reason why the Jews understood Jesus' claim to be blasphemy and they were furious about it is they believed that Jesus was claiming to be a rival to God. Perhaps the thing that the exile taught the Jews most clearly, more than anything else, was that there was only one God. They had come back to the old Shema, Hero Israel, of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And they had been amongst Persian gods, and, and, and Babylonian gods, <coughs> and Greek gods, and all kinds of other pagan gods. And they had learnt through hard experience that there's only one true God, and that every other so-called God is a false rival. But for Jesus, this is different. He's not claiming to be a rival to God. And so what we see here are four statements, each of which begin with the connecting word for. Jesus is giving four reasons why he is being revealed as God to them. And the first one of them we see in verse 19. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And this statement gives us some insight into the Trinity. Now, understanding the Trinity and thinking about the Trinity is difficult. But it is necessary for us as believers, because if we don't understand the Trinity, we don't understand Jesus, and if we don't understand Jesus, we don't understand salvation. So you can't just say, that's hard, Pastor, and I can't understand all of it, so I'm going to ignore it. No, no, no. If you have come to the place where you say, I can't understand the Trinity in its fullness, then join the club. It's a very big club. As a matter of fact, it's everyone. It's every believer, every pastor, every theologian. No one can plumb the depths of the Trinity. But God, in His Word, has revealed to us enough about who he is, so that we can understand the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the Trinity. That is, that God is three persons, equal in power and glory, in one being. And so, this text explains this to us. What Jesus says is, literally, he does nothing from himself. Nothing of his own accord. There is nothing that comes from himself, out of himself. Now, this does not mean that the Son is inferior to the Father. They are equal in power and glory. The Son is eternal 
as the Father is eternal. There was never a time when the Son was not. Now, you should all know this because we've all studied John 1 together. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So what does this mean here? It means that there is nothing that Jesus does that is out of accord with the Father. There is no independence of Jesus, the Son, from the Father. There is no competition between them to get their ways. You know, we can see that in our world today. For example, on a sports team, there may be a unity with respect to goal. We want to win the championship. But that doesn't mean that on every member of the team, there is unity of purpose and the way to accomplish that goal. If you're a football team, there might be some on the team that would say, we need to run the ball every down. And then there would be others that would say, no, 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 we need to pass the ball on every down because we all want to win a championship, don't we? Yes, we all do. And then some will butt in and say, no, 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 it's the defense that's important. And then I just picture in my mind's eye, way on the end of the bench, the small, slight man called the kicker raising his hand and say, you need me if the game's close. But you see, there's unity of goal, but not unity of operation. That is not true of the Trinity. Jesus is telling us here about the nature of God. The Father and the Son are one. The will of the Son and the will of the Father are the same in purpose, in end, and in all actions. And this statement shows us the equality of the Son with the Father. Because if Jesus, as he says, does whatever the Father does, then that means the Son must be the equal of the Father. There's nothing the Father does that the Son can't do. The Son does whatever the Father does. So the Son, therefore, must be ever-present. He must be all-seeing. He must be all-knowing. The Son must be infinite in every way, without beginning and without end. He comes up short in no way at all. Whatever the Father does, He can do. So those who would claim that Jesus is the firstborn among creation, or unable to do this or do that, don't understand this text. Jesus is clearly claiming to be God himself. Now, Jesus' statement here also shows us how the Trinity works. Now, I'm going to give you two relatively big terms that hopefully you'll write down and will help you to remember the nature of the Trinity. The first big term is ontological. The second big term is economic. Now, the second term is more familiar than the first. What do I mean by ontological? Ontological has to do with being. It just comes from the Greek word for essence or to be. And so we consider the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in its being. And in the being of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all are equal in power and glory. There is no ranking there is no junior God in the Godhead. All three persons of the Godhead are equal in power and glory in their essence. And we can think about this by analogy even to us. So there are differences between men and women and adults and children. But ontologically, 
That is, with respect to our being, we are all equal and the same. There is no inherent inferiority amongst people. As made in the image of God, we are all the same. And so if we analogize that to God, all three persons of the Godhead are equal. But they act in different ways, especially with respect to their roles in salvation. That is the economic nature of the Trinity. Now when I say economic, do not be thinking about inflation or interest rates or GDP. By economic, we mean the working out of things, the acting of things. And so, for example, the Father in the economy of salvation elects sinners to salvation and sends the Son. The Son, His role in salvation is to come and do the work of redemption and to accomplish it. The Spirit in His role of redemption supports the Son in His work and then applies that work to believers. But there is a unity of outworking in this. Perfect agreement, unity of will. There is no competition at all. There is just a statement of primary role. The Son cannot act without the Father. The Father cannot act without the Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying here. There is perfect unity. No rivalry at all. Now again, if I can give an analogy from everyday life, we try and operate this way in our lives. Any set of parents that has children. When I was a bit younger and my children were much younger, they would occasionally come up and ask me for permission to do something. To go outside, to be with a friend, to get certain food or whatever. And I learned very quickly as a parent, my response was always the same. Have you asked your mother? Because you see, I learned quickly that the reason my children came to ask me questions is if they'd already asked mom and she said no, they would try to go around mom to me and get a yes. And there was no way that was happening. We wanted unity. And if they said, no, we haven't asked mom yet, my response would be, well, let's get mom over here and we together can discuss it. Now, if you're young here today and wondering, that's what's happening, don't worry about it. Someday you'll have kids and you can say the same thing to them. The pastor says so. So, in this way, there is always unity. You don't need to, the father doesn't need to ask the son. The father always knows what the son wills. The son always knows what the father wills. They are in perfect harmony. Now what does that mean for you? Why is that important other than esoteric theology? It means you never have to worry about the father rejecting the sacrifice of the son on your behalf. Because they always agree. The father is the one who sent the son to accomplish that work. The Father is the one who supported the Son. The Son was the one who was willing to fulfill the will of the Father in saving a people. They're acting in perfect harmony. That's the first four statement from Jesus. But then if we go down just a little bit in verse 20, we see a second four statement. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Now this is the second four statement that Jesus gives. A reason. 
And it shows us why there's no competition beyond unity of purpose. It's not just that the Father and the Son want the same thing. Their wills are united because of their relationship. The Son does what He sees the Father doing because the Father shows the Son what He's doing. This is an eternal loving relationship. The Son would never want to act contrary to the Father. And the Father would never want to withhold from the Son. Now notice, Jesus says that all is revealed to the Son. Nothing is held back. In our relationships, fathers cannot and do not show everything to their sons. Fathers are not going to show their six-year-old sons how to drive or how to operate a buzzsaw. It's just not going to happen. It may be because sons aren't ready to take on that task. Or it may be that the fathers themselves are hesitant about things or the skill of the son. But the father holds nothing back. He shows, that is, he reveals, he explains everything to the son. And the response of love by the son is obedience. There is a picture here of the son carrying out the work of the father. Now you've probably seen that in your life. Sons love to learn from their fathers. And fathers teach their sons. For some, they teach their sons how to work on cars or how to make repairs around the house. Now, that was not me. But for me, it was teaching them computers or how to write or how to think about legal matters. There's always something for a father to teach his sons. And Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, if you think I've made a statement so far, you haven't seen anything yet. He says, greater works than these will the Father show the Son, so that you may marvel. Now, what does this mean? I think Jesus is about to tell us of the great power that he has. Jesus has already claimed that what he has done is in accord with the Father and his will. Now, this is important for two reasons. First, it backs up Jesus' claim of equality with the Father. And it refutes the Jewish leader's criticism of him, that he's making a false claim. After all, how could they object to the healing that Jesus performed if the Father is in accord with that healing? How can they object to Jesus' teaching if the Father is in accord with that? How can they object to anything that Jesus does if they're in accord, Father and Son? But Jesus now is going to point them to so much more. He reminds them that the Father raises the dead. Look with me at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Now, the Jewish leaders would have understood what Jesus was saying here. Because there was a rabbinic saying, a truism, that there were three areas that were preserved and reserved only for God himself. That God was Lord over the rain. No one could give rain but God. That God was Lord over the womb. 
that children were given to a couple only by the will of God. He could open and close the womb. And of course, we see this over and over again in the scriptures. But the third area was that God was Lord over resurrection or giving of life. We see an example of this in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 5. You may remember the story where Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, is sent with leprosy to the king of Israel. And the Syrian king says, you need to make sure that my general is healed. And the king of Israel looks at the messengers and he says, am I God that I could kill or make alive? And the answer, of course, is no, I can't. Only God can make alive. Even the prophets Elijah and Elisha that brought people back to life did so through their prayers to God. They weren't the ones doing it. It was God who was in control of life. God was at work through them. But Jesus goes further than that. Do you see it in the second part of this verse? So also the Son gives life to whom He will. He's claiming what only belongs to God. It's not just that He's an instrument being used by God, but He is God who acts of His own will. Now, just because the will of the Father and the will of the Son are aligned, don't miss the authority of Jesus in what He says here. He doesn't need to ask the Father permission. But the Father and the Son are always aligned. They each have the power and the prerogative of deity. Now this was a scandalizing claim by Jesus. It certainly would have been blasphemous for anyone else to say, except Jesus, because Jesus is God. Do you see how over and over again Jesus does not let you say he's just a good teacher? You either have to accept Jesus as God or he is a liar or a crazy man. Because he's God, you have to obey his word. When Jesus speaks, it has all the authority of God. And this is where our culture gets it wrong. They want to pick the parts of Jesus that they like. They want Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. Or walk a mile in that man's shoes, Jesus. Or speak softly, Jesus. They want the parts of Jesus that fit with what they like. That fit with their desires, their politics, their needs. But you can't do that. That's not who Jesus is. Well, we now come to a fourth fourth statement in verse 22. Each of these statements revealing who God is, that Jesus does the works of the Father, that Jesus is loved by the Father, that Jesus can give life as the Father. And now in verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. This is the second of the greater works that Jesus has been talking about. He has the ability to give life And he's the one who judges. Now again, the connection here is emphasized between the Father and the Son. The Father doesn't judge, doesn't fail to judge because of his inability. The Father gives judgment to the Son. And the Father would only do that if he knew that the Son had perfect judgment, which he does. 
The Father knows the Son will judge in harmony with the Father's will. Now what this judgment will look like, we'll see just a bit later. But it's important to know that Jesus has this authority. He has this power. Now why is this the case? I think verse 23 tells us that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You see, at first this seems strange, but think about it for a moment. People want to treat Jesus as just one option among many. You want to believe in Jesus, that's fine. You believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. And we'll all just get along about that. There's no reason we should fight about it. But Jesus tells you that's not an option. You see, religious pluralism, that is, that treats all religions as being equal and equally true, is not true. Jesus says that here. He says, if you don't honor me, you dishonor the Father. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because if you are a Muslim and you claim that Jesus is not God, you are dishonoring God. If you are a Hindu and you don't believe Jesus is divine, you are dishonoring God. If you are spiritual, but you don't have time for Jesus and you don't think Jesus is the only way to salvation, then you are spitting in the face, so to speak, of God. There's no way around it. Jesus is very plain here. He doesn't sugarcoat it at all. Jesus is challenging these Jewish leaders now. But he's also challenging you. You must deal with Jesus. He's the judge. The Father has given judgment to Him. You young people here today may think you can bide your time and wait out Jesus. But you can't. You older people might think as long as you avoid a public display of ungodliness, that you can avoid Jesus as well. But there's no escape from our Lord Jesus Christ as judge. Your choice is either to honor God by honoring Jesus or to dishonor God by dishonoring Jesus. There's no other way around it. There's no third way. There's no nuance at all. Well, that brings us to the second thing that this text shows us. We've seen Jesus revealed as God, and now Jesus gives us the reasons that we are to hear Him. And the first is that the Son has life. Look with me at verse 24. Truly, truly, there it is, that formula again. Listen up. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is reminding us that there's a choice before us. And that choice is between life and death. And he uses that truly, truly formula to get our attention. And then he uses a universal word in verse 24. Whoever hears my voice... We should be used to that word by now. It applies to everyone. 
That means it applies to you. Right here. Right now. It's almost as if Jesus is applying the truths that he's just told us. The Son has the power of life and the power of judgment. And what that means is Jesus has the power to bring you from death to life. Now why would you need that? It's because apart from Christ, you are in a state of death and condemnation. Notice how Jesus puts it. You are already in death before you hear. Jesus doesn't say, if you hear and reject, you're condemned. He says, if you hear and believed, you are saved. Otherwise, you are condemned. You are already in the estate of death. The only way to go from death to life is to believe. This is consistent with what we saw earlier in John chapter 3. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And you might be asking, but pastor, you just told me Jesus is going to judge the world. Yes, but Jesus doesn't have to condemn the world by coming into the world. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You're already in a state of condemnation apart from Jesus. Your only hope is to pass from death to life. And your only hope to do that is to believe in the word that Jesus gives. If you hear what Jesus says, eternal life is right before you now. Jesus gives us his word, a word that's in complete harmony with the Father. And you must hear that word. And by hear, it means more than listen. It means to receive. It means to believe. It's more than just you listening to the sound of my voice. You know what that means, right? Every husband and wife knows what that means. When you're a husband and your wife talks to you, and then she says, what do you think? And the husband gets that kind of far-off stare, and she says, were you listening to me? And then if she's really mean, she'll say, repeat back what I just said. And then you're in a boatload of trouble. Because you may have been listening, but you're kind of watching the game. Kind of doing something on the computer. Thinking about what you're going to make for lunch. Right? That's not the kind of hearing Jesus is talking about. He's talking about hearing that leads to action. Hearing that is accepting, that is believing. That's what Jesus means when he says we have to hear him. We have to hear and obey his word. And by doing that, we are believing the one who sent him, that is the Father. And there is no better time to believe than now. Because when you believe, Jesus says, you have eternal life. Present tense. You have passed from death to life. That's what Jesus means in verse 25. You have it now. But you don't have it in all of its fullness. That's what Jesus means when he says, the hour is coming and is now. You have eternal life now, but not in its fullness and completeness. There will come a day in glory when you will have the fullness of eternal life. When not only will you be able to defeat temptation and sin, you will never be tempted again. It will be impossible for you to sin. That you not only can have communion with God, your entire existence will be communion with God. You will be exactly as you should be. Will you hear Jesus' word? 
It's before you right now. You can't say you didn't know. The voice of the Son is speaking to you right now. Hear and live. Because there's no other place to turn to. There's no other source of life. The great error of our age is that God is somehow sitting up on a mountain. And there are many ways and paths to God. And they're all equally good. But that's not the truth. That's not what God's Word teaches. Now that may be hard for you to hear today. You may be thinking about friends or family members who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not believed upon His Word, but they're nice people and they're kind and they're friendly. And we'd like to think that God would smile on them. But what it comes down to is, do you believe the Bible is God's Word and is true? Because if you do, there's no way to escape Jesus' words here. Jesus is the one who has life. No one else. Finally, Jesus is revealed as the judge. You must deal with the Son. Look at verse 27. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Now we saw this earlier, but Jesus brings it up again here. The Father has given the Son the authority to execute judgment. And this is based on who Jesus is, that He is the Son of Man. Now when we first hear this, this is one of Jesus' favorite designations of Himself. We think it relates to Jesus' humanity. After all, He's the Son of Man. But actually, it refers to Jesus' deity. Jesus is pulling this phrase from the prophet Daniel. In the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Daniel, we read in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's that phrase. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And the ancient of days is clearly God. He is sitting on his throne. Daniel has a vision of the ancient of days ruling over all and being the eternal God. And to him, that is, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All of that description is divine. It's an eternal kingdom with all peoples in it, an eternal and godly power. That's who the Son of Man is. That's who Jesus is. You will stand before Jesus one day. Everyone will. And His judgment will be just. Jesus tells us that in verse 30. I, my judgment is just, and I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You must hear the voice of Jesus. The hour is going to come when every single person will rise from the grave. All will come and be resurrected. And there are only two eternal outcomes, life or judgment. Some will be raised to the resurrection of life, others to the resurrection of judgment. Those who have heard Jesus' word and obeyed it will come to the resurrection of life. And those who do not will experience judgment. 
Now, what does it mean in verse 29 to say, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment? It doesn't mean that you've done more good than bad. Don't run out of the church this morning and try and get all kinds of works done so that your good works will outweigh your bad works. That's not how this works. Jesus is saying that you have to believe on Him. And Jesus actually tells us in the Bible that your work is to believe upon Him and the One who has sent Him. That is the work that saves when you stand before Christ in judgment, Jesus will look upon your works. And if you have accepted Christ by faith and done away with your own doing, the only thing that the judge will see is the righteous works of Christ. You are saved by works, just not your own. Jesus is. And we cannot think that if we do not believe in Jesus, that we could somehow have works that are anything other than filthy rags, which is what Isaiah tells us. Any work that is done outside of Christ is sin. It is not done for the glory of God, in obedience to God. It is self-centered, and it is sin. The things that our society would say are the most generous, most kind, best, giving millions of dollars, Saving people from drowning. Helping people with their problems. Apart from Christ, our sin and works of judgment. Your only hope is to run to Jesus. And when you do, all of your works are righteous. You don't need to stay up late at night saying, well, I believe in Jesus, but I did tell that lie yesterday. I wonder if God's going to not love me tomorrow. No. Jesus covers us with his righteousness. This passage prevents us from having a false view of Jesus. A precious moments, cuddly, soft, non-judgmental Jesus. It actually confronts us with the true Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is God. He has the power of God and the rights of God. His word is true, and we are called to obey it. Will you hear his voice today? If you do, you will have eternal life. You will not come into judgment, but you will pass from death into life. This is Jesus' gracious invitation to you right now. His word is a word of hope. It's a word of life. We can rejoice because Jesus has all authority. Because Jesus has gone to the cross for sinners. He has paid the price for us. Receive him now. Let's pray.